So this this example um, comes from the '90s. It was some study, and and yeah, I think I think that the the um, the words were it was like some sort of sentence scrambling task or whatever. Where hidden in this are you know frequency of I think they said elderly related words. So yeah, like yeah, elderly related words, words. Yeah, words related to to aging, and so it's like yeah, like like old and florida and retirement and so it, so this sort of subliminally affected the claim is this subliminally affected their walking speed and you know you could imagine that you know like why why stop with elderly related words you know maybe the lengths of the words matter or maybe you know the 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 um the way that a, a word is pronounced you know like if it flows or if it's like really chopped up you know that could also affect your your speed and and you just think that if if I can I can imagine you know a hundred of these um, and they all seem to be kind of equally valid over here, and if it's the case that there are a hundred that do you know that are independent of each other and you know affect your walking speed by thirteen percent, then yeah I mean like that that basically you know like just like random variation of among these different factors would routinely have people going you know twice as fast or half as fast so. Yeah, you could actually imagine that if two people went for a walk uh, via sort of accessing the wrong maledictions in the process of their conversation, that effectively they might even be able to injure themselves due to the vi- <laughs> unnecessary variability of walking speed. Like, yeah. Exactly, it's dangerous. I yeah, mean, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. Potential, I mean, like, yeah, if you draw them to um, maybe not the logical conclusion, but an, an extreme conclusion, then then it, it, it becomes sort of like kind of apparent that it's, a little maybe nonsensical. Um, Two gerontologists go for a walk and become frozen in space. So Chris, if we just say Andrew Gelman's name a whole bunch at the beginning, do you think more of the statisticians will be interested in listening for longer? <laughs> should we just, should we just try that? Andrew Gelman, Andrew Gelman, Andrew Gelman. Andrew Gelman, I guess we'll uh, we'll summon him. All right. Yes, if you look into a mirror on Halloween and say Andrew Gelman's name three times, uh, he will be summoned to uh, to your location, um, <laughs> and and maybe blog about it later. Yeah. Um, cool. But yeah. So uh, today we have a really fun episode. It's on the piranha problem, which I think has been discussed for a number of years in statistics. But what? What I really like about uh, so Chris came up with this paper on the on the Piranha problem, and it has a lot of the mathematical aspects of this sort of well known scientific problem. And what I appreciate about it is that previously I only understood this from sort of a um, how do you how do you put it? like an intuitive? I had an intuitive view of it, but Chris went through and just knocked out all the math on a large number of sort of these important aspects. So. Um, I think we're going to start by defining the Prana problem, and then um, going to uh, going into essentially what your papers are because this is a really great example of using scientific reasoning and critical thinking directly applied to the way people make scientific statements. Um, so, Chris, welcome to the show. Um, yeah, what to begin? What is the Prana problem? Yeah, so I actually I would I would first like to say that you know like uh, you know this is actually a collaboration. Uh, with a few people, so so while <laughs> Andrew Gelman, <laughs> Andrew Gelman is one of them, but but I you know there's a there's a few people on the paper um, that you know like I, I definitely have to give credit to that it's not just me in this paper, it's also you know my wonderful co-authors 
uh, that did it that that are there as well. Yeah. This is actually all just a uh, a trick to get Aki Vitari to come on at some point. Um, so I'm just slowly <laughs> reeling him in by getting all his co-authors to come on. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. So, but uh, but you know, to your original question about what the piranha problem is, um, it's this question or problem that occurs when you think about many um, sort of statistical studies uh, in aggregate. Mm -hmm. So the, the question is that, suppose that you have some outcome variable that you are really interested in, that, that has attracted a lot of attention. For example, voting behavior would be one of these. And then you want to ask what affects voting behavior? What out there actually you know, if I measured it, I could also tell you a little bit about how someone might vote. And you can imagine a whole bunch of different ways in which people could go about, like different um, uh, variables that they can measure alongside voting behavior. And the question is, how many of these effects are, are, are likely to be there? Are, are, how, is it possible for us to put a bound on how many such effects can actually exist. Um, and the reason that we think about this in terms of piranhas is because you could imagine that each one of these you know, effects on, on the outcome variable of interest is like, a, is like a piranha. And if we could show that it's not possible for there to be many such effects, this is almost as if the piranhas are eating each other, that you can't have too many piranhas in a single tank. There's just not enough room. They're going to cannibalize themselves and you'll only be left with a couple of piranhas. Cool. And so I guess, you know, um, I first heard about this, what, probably about four or five years ago on Andrew Gelman's blog. And um, he was, as you said, you know, it's with regard to social uh, social phenomena where you have a lot of people saying, you know, you do these small things and you can have these large effect sizes like some perverse version of the butterfly effect, except that it's always guaranteed, things like that. So I guess part of the problem is the nature of these claims that these, um, if you have something that you care about like voting and you have some, um, you know, some confounding effect, uh, I think he likes to bring up like whether or not your college football team is winning that year or women like during their like menstrual cycle and all these unusual correlations that pop up and the nature of the claim though isn't that oh these are correlated with things that actually matter the problem is that they're actually claiming this is predictive and it's predictive uh replicably and so in that it's predictive the the magnitude the effect size of these things is independent of everything else as in we've controlled for the confounding and we still find these effect sizes is that um that's sort of the nature of the claim, right? Yeah, that's the nature of the claim that we're trying to go after or that we're trying to um, understand a little better. Is, yeah. is like for such claims where you say that, yes, you know, shark attacks, the number of shark attacks is somehow predictive of voting behavior or performance of local college football team is in fact predictive. Uh, the question is, is it possible for all of these things that's, that are seemingly independent um, of each other, is it possible for all of them to actually make uh, an impact on, on voting behavior? And have a large enough effect size to be noteworthy, I guess, exactly. to be worth it, worth writing home about or writing your journal. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that is the interest of the problem. And the reason that it really uh, caught on with me is because effectively, 
a lot of the times when we make sort of like these scientific claims or claims in studies, um, we think that we're just making claims about what's the nature of the data and things like that. But the fact is we are actually, or that these claims aren't as serious as the claim you're making if you're bringing statistics into it. So by nature, you bring in statistics and talking about the correlation or the effect size and things like this, you're actually making very strong mathematical claims. It's one of the reasons why we like, so why we couch our statements in science and couch them in statistics. So you can make these strong, interesting claims. But the problem is that those claims come with the baggage of logical rigor. And so I think what, what's cool about, cool about these problems is like, okay, let's, let's, let's evaluate the, the rigor of these statements. Let's evaluate the mathematical implications of saying that there's, you know, 20 different ways that you can have a high effect on voting patterns. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the point is that once you've stated something along the lines of, uh, we measured and we like in the, in the literature, there is say, yeah, 20, 50 effects out there, each, which we've shown are correlated with the outcome variable, you know, and the correlation coefficient looks like, you know, point. 0.2 or 0.3, um, now we can actually sit back and say, is this mathematically feasible? Or, uh, you know, uh, yeah, or, or what conditions actually allow this to be mathematically feasible? Yeah, I, I like that, the, the issue of what conditions, because effectively, it's not just that they're saying that there are these things with these correlations, these effect sizes, and that there's, you know, 20, 30, 50 of them. It's also stating, and they're independent. And so it's saying effectively, and we controlled, Therefore, these things, this, the magnitude of this effect should be independent um, exactly. as opposed to simply correlated. Yeah, cool. Hey, folks, we're a few minutes into the show. This is usually the part where the podcaster talks about their sponsor or something. I'm not going to do that, but I will ask two things. One, if you leave a like or a dislike based on your preference, and also let me know what you think about this topic and also what topics you like discussed on future episodes of the show. That's it. Enjoy the episode. No, th this, is, this is really cool. Um, and so I think that sort of the benefit of your work is that effectively you went and did the math stats to show, to provide upper bounds on what some of these claims could be, um, which is nice because I'm, I'm more of an intuitive statistician where when I first read about the Piranha problem, and for those listening, I'll pop a picture up on the screen just so it's a little bit easier to, to uh, visualize what I'm talking about, but I sort of imagined it like a, uh, like a knapsack problem with, uh, where you have a covariance matrix and you're sequentially adding one row and one row and one row to these things. So essentially you have your first, uh, your first variable is Y, which everything is related to. So for example, voting patterns or health or something like that. Um, Cause obviously nutritional gains are also a uh, thing that usually pops up. It's like, if you can improve your chances of some benefit uh, substantially in those things, but anyway, like the idea is like, imagine Imagine that you had a uh, two by two covariance matrix and Y is the thing you care about and X is the first predictor. And it's like, okay, and that's 50% correlated. Cool, all right. Um, and it's gonna be independent of everything else. Then you add the next predictor, so X2, and that's also 50% uh, correlated with our adjust for the covariance. But yeah, I guess it'd be 0.5 as well for that. If we do unit variance and zero mean. Um, and that's also 50% uh, correlated with Y. And it's independent of X1. It's like, well, then how many of those Xs could we add on before effectively you have a, a nonsensical covariance matrix? Because um, effectively, you're only going to be populating the diagonal and the uh, first column and first row. 
and pretty shortly, you're not going to have a, I guess, a, a positive semi-definite matrix. Um, you know, you, you, it's, it's not going to meet the requirements of a, of a covariance matrix. Um, and so that, that was the way I was doing it. It's just like, okay, if you start filling these things up with highly correlated and they're independent, so all those zeros in the matrix too, eventually you have to decide, well, I'm after, if I want to fit in more, I'm going to have to reduce the covariance. So that's one assumption. Or two, I have to start saying that some of these things are correlated, you know. But anyway, yeah, I, I sort of went on. Um, actually, one other way that I was thinking about it, though, was essentially like if you had data along multiple dimensions and how um, if you were basically looking at the eigenvectors and how much, once you've removed one correlate, how much variability could be left in the uh, the remainder. But that's just intuition. You know, that, 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 that was just me like processing it, not really thinking about it too much. What you thought about it and you figured out some of these things and you, so you went through and you did, um, uh, I guess you, you know, you did the correlational aspect, uh, you did what they mean for regression models you did for, uh, entropy. What, what was your strategy in sort of selecting these? Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good question. And, and I will say that, you know, like, like you've just alluded to right here, um, there's no, we don't, I don't really think of it. And I, I think my co-authors co don't really think of there being like a single, Piranha theorem. Um, rather, we think about these as sort of like a family of such theorems uh, that you can, you know, prove about certain types of statistical effects. <clears throat> so, yeah. So, so when we decided to sit down and and, and work out some of the math over here, um, I think that you know that maybe the easiest one to 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 think about is is uh, this this correlation type thing. You know, like just like you're you're only looking at you know pairwise correlations. Can we somehow make some sort of statement about that? And, and in fact, actually, the, the sort of um, intuition that you built over here of this looking at this covariance matrix and adding, you know, ones along the diagonal and in the first element, um, this is, I think, a, a perfectly valid way to actually prove <laughs> uh, a parodic theorem. You know, this is, this is, you know, perfectly valid. Um, the way that we did it for the, for the correlation was um, a little different. It turns out that um, you can show one of these correlation uh, piranha theorems just through Cauchy-Schwartz. It's like a just a really beautiful um, sort of like an elegant application of Cauchy-Schwartz, um, and uh, and and it actually it turned out that so after after we 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 sort of proved this sort of first one, uh, did a little bit of searching in, in the literature and actually found out that this you know was actually known before. So. Um, uh, it was we found it on a, a Terence Tao's blog. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was a little bit surprising to see that he was thinking about this. Um, yeah, no, that, that's like probably one of the best uh, less lesser known blogs that's out there. I'm not sure if it's like super popular among statisticians. I'm since I'm more in the like the data science area, but no, Terence Tao's blog. Um, if we're if we're thinking about the same one, or he keeps multiple blogs. That is a very good resource. You know, I'll pop that up on there. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And and he actually called it so. So I guess apparently he he found it in, in some source before. He actually called it Van der Korpet's inequality. Um, but I I haven't yet been able to sort of like track down the original over here. But uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, I think that it's it's. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's something that it's it's actually so. Uh, you know, whenever you whenever you prove something that seems you know, very interesting. Um, and at the same time, it only took like three lines. 
Uh, you should immediately be suspicious that other people have sort of thought of this. And, and in fact, that is sort of the case over here. Um, but I think that what we try to do is we try to like reframe this going from, you know, so, so Terrence Tao had a particular reason for looking at these types of inequalities that occur in very deep areas of mathematics. Over here, we, we sort of saw um, maybe a more immediate application into how to think about sort of like, you know, statistical effects in the social sciences, for example. Yeah, I, I really like, I guess a large part of it is the framing because when I was, um, I mean, like even I was surprised that like if I was able to intuit the, 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 the basic relationship, um, that it, that it would be sort of a, a fairly tractable, uh, tractable proof, at least for some, for some of these examples, like for the, the entropy one that we'll get into, you know, um, maybe, maybe less like immediately, uh, available to some of us, uh, lesser mathematicians, but, um, at the same time, I think that the framing of the problem is at least that's what fascinates me the most, because effectively there is an, there's a language translation of this mathematics. There's, you know, a logical translation that very much affects how we make statements. And even for things like, uh, you know, if you're in, in, if you're in machine learning, the idea of, you know, how many uh, additional features could you add that maintain their independence, um, before essentially they're going to start cannibalizing each other. And also the nature of the cannibalization, you know, like how many times can you have a positively correlated, how many positively correlated variables can you add before you need to start finding a negative, uh, a negative correlation and so essentially something to sort of reset the, the variability back. Um, but yeah, uh, maybe to go from here, um, how would you, how would you like to proceed? Uh, should we just maybe just restart. I feel like I've been babbling enough that maybe we should just restart with the problem. Problem. The idea is like, okay. um, the idea is if you have um, a large, if you have a small, a small pond or a fish tank, um, you can only put so many piranhas in before they start eating each other, um, before essentially you run out of space. And so effectively, you're going to have, you're, you're going to only have a small number of piranhas. Um, and the piranha requires them essentially to be independent. They don't. They don't play together. I guess. Um, and for these claims, essentially you're saying for any entity with variability, if you have a certain number of covariates, uh, correlations and things like that, that those won't actually, um, you can only have so many of them that are one independent, two very important. Um, I, I actually, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, both independent and very important. Yeah, exactly. So basically these, these piranha problems and in a bunch of different ways, they, they assert essentially the same thing where there are two possible worlds that you live in. One of them is the one where all of the claimed effects are real. Like you, you actually do have, you know, large effects. Um, and, and everybody that's, you know, measured these things, they didn't screw up with the data. It's not measurement error. It's really there. But in that world, you also must have that um, they themselves are are cross correlated with each other. So there are, you know, you're, so they are they so they, for example, cannot be independent. Uh, that's a consequence. So you're either in that world, or you're in the world where um, they you all these effects are independent of each other. All these these covariates that you're thinking about are independent of each other, but then that means that only some of them can, only some of these measured, you know, claims can actually be true. Mm -hmm. True and strong, but yeah, yeah, so, yeah, you, sorry, I, 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 I'm, I'm excited about this topic, so I, I keep interjecting uselessly, but yeah, no, it, it, it is cool, uh, again, playing with that. So 
I, uh, I had some quotes from your paper that I thought would be useful for us to talk through. Um, um, and this will also lead some places. So one, one of them is from, from page two for anyone who uh, grabs the paper and the paper will be linked in the video description. Um, some of the claim facts are smaller than claimed or, oops, oh, sorry. So, some of the claim facts are smaller than claimed or some of the expl explanatory variables are essentially measuring the same phenomena. I think that's what you just described. Um, and part of this is, you know, is that some of this just sharing the random noise or measurement error. Because part of what we can think is if the effect size is very large, it also might mean that there's just a lot of noise in, in measurement. So the fact is in order to have a large effect size, essentially you are just capturing just a very noisy process. Right. Yeah. So, so it could be, so if there's a large effect size, then you would hope that it's sort of like the signal, like the signal to noise ratio. That's, that's maybe one, one sort of like way to think about this. If that's, if that's large enough that it sort of stands out above the signal and you can reliably pick it up. Um, right. I mean, you would hope that's the case, but yeah, the, the point over here is that, um, that you, that basically you can't have enough of these variables that are independent of each other and are also above that noise, like that have like a strong enough signal to noise ratio. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I mean, like, so, you know, like if you, if you want to ask the question, so how is it that um, looking back uh, at, you know, these um, studies showing that shark attacks, you know, college football games, you know, hormones, all of these things have an effect on voting behavior. How is it the case that all of them seem to have that seem to be independent and you know they also claimed a large effect size um what we what we can say is that well it's probably some, i mean like for some of them they must have picked up you know this sort of like a, too much noise in their measurements and, and it's not actually um it's not real uh at the population yeah and i guess uh one one other bit that i was thinking about um is that, uh, for example, with regards to voting, I don't. Th is there even that much evidence that there's variability in voting? I, I thought that basically people pretty much. It, it's about like what? If there's maybe about like eleven percent of people are undecided going into any given election, which means it's a very small range from which to have variability, and then to have these things which can have large effects on the variability. You know, if you're saying twenty percent more likely to vote for Barack Obama or something like that, you know. 20% is a very big effect that you can have for something that has very low intrinsic variability to it um, because people set in their ways. And so to me, that seems like, I sort of think about it as sort of like the law of total covariance where I fear that if you essentially line these things up enough that you would effectively be getting enough added variability that exceeds the variability of the actual variable of interest if you believe right. that they're independent. Right, exactly. I mean, like that's that's the other way to reason about these these mm -hmm. types of piranha theorems is is that they are in, in effect finding what is the possible cap that you could have, mm -hmm. you know, of of these sort of independent, you know, variables. Yeah, and I think you gave a really uh, great example in yours um, where you're talking about walking speed, and so effectively, uh, just to recap, there was a study that showed people or told people sort of like geriatric or debilitating words, just sort of downer words like old, infirmed, fall, I don't know, things like that. And then they, I believe you said, surreptitiously recorded them as they left uh, the, um, as they left the study area and they measured their walking speed. And they found out that the people who are shown these sort of infirmed, infirming words, these, uh, these curses, if you will, slowed them down by 13%. And uh, your example was that 
if you had, um, if you had, you know, X many of these type of effects, you would essentially be doubling or having the walking speed of participants without them even noticing. And it would be a relatively small number, right? Right. Yeah. So, so that's, that's sort of exactly the point, like, which is that, um, yeah, so in, so this this example um, comes from the '90s. It was some study, and and yeah, I think I think that the the the, um, the words were it was like some sort of sentence scrambling task or whatever. Where hidden in this are you know frequency of I think they said elderly related words. So yeah, like yeah, elderly related words, words. Yeah, words related to to aging. And so it's like yeah, like like old and florida and retirement and so it, so this sort of subliminally affected the claim is this subliminally affected their walking speed and you know you could imagine that you know like why why stop with elderly related words you know maybe the lengths of the words matter or maybe you know the 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 um the way that a, a word is pronounced you know like if it flows or if it's like really chopped up you know that could also affect your your speed and and you just think that if if I can I can imagine you know a hundred of these um, and they all seem to be kind of equally valid over here, and if it's the case that there are a hundred that do you know that are independent of each other and you know affect your walking speed by thirteen percent, then yeah I mean like that that basically you know like just like random variation of among these different factors would routinely have people going you know twice as fast or half as fast so. Yeah, you could actually imagine that if two people went for a walk uh, via sort of accessing the wrong maledictions in the process of their conversation, that effectively they might even be able to injure themselves due to the vi- <laughs> unnecessary variability of walking speed. Like, yeah. Exactly. It's dangerous. I yeah, mean, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. Potential. I mean, like, yeah, if you draw them to um, maybe not the logical conclusion, but an, an extreme conclusion, then, then it, it, it becomes sort of like kind of apparent that it's, a little maybe nonsensical. Um, Two gerontologists go for a walk and become frozen in space, um, <laughs> something like that. But yeah, um, cool. Another another quote from page two that I thought would, um, I was a little bit wondering about this, um, is it says, um, at first glance, it may be somewhat surprising that one can rule out the possibility of many independent variables having large effects on a single outcome. Indeed, there's nothing functionally or causally that excludes such dependencies. Um, I was, I was wondering a little bit about this. Um, I know, I know it's like a very specific bit, but I was wondering about talking about the functional or causal, um, that excludes having these types of dependencies. What are, what are your thoughts on sort of the relationship that these things have with sort of functional descriptions, causal descriptions, um, and how we can use those aspects to reason through shark attacks aren't taking down too many voters, you know, um, state of the economy might, but you, you, you get that idea. What is the interplay um, between the causal and functional understandings, and how would that have saved us from these mistakes? Right. Yeah. So I think I think that what the what the quote is, um, I think what that part of the the paper is really trying to communicate is that, you know, this that that on one hand, when you think about these effects, um, it's you know, like you can say, okay, yeah, of course, you know, like I can come up with these correlation matrices and and show that. Um, eventually you'll get something that's not positive semi-definite and, and therefore correlations can't be this way. But if you sit down and think, you can come up with ways in which you can have, I mean, there, there are ways in which you can have many different variables 
that do have a functional um, relationship with some outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's they're, they're somewhat contrived examples, but I, I, I think about them in terms of like um, the, 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 the type of relationship I'm thinking about is some sort of light switch, multiple light switch problems. So think about like you have a bunch of light switches in your house that all, you know, turn on the same light bulb. Um, and, and, you know, what the property that these have is that if I, for any fixed position of these, of these light switches, if I flip one of them, it will change the state of the light bulb, right? Like it'll flip it on or it'll flip it off, you know? So when I think about the, the light switches as explanatory variables, um, each of them does have a functional relationship with the light bulb. But the kind of the point where the piranha problem comes up is um, if your observations of light switches and light bulbs were purely observational, like you only observe them and, and this and the light switch positions were independent of each other, then it turns out that you would actually like statistically not be able to measure any relationship between the, the light bulbs and the, and the light switch. Like for this particular example, if the light switches are independent of each other, then their correlation with the um, light bulb is zero there, uh, if you plugged it into a regression, they would also, all the variables would come out zero. Um, you, would, you wouldn't be able to statistically detect this. So yeah, so I, I know that this has been a very long answer to your question, but the, the point that I'm trying to say is, is, is basically that, you know, there's a difference between what we think about as a functional relationship and what we can sort of determine statistically. And, and sort of like, these are, you know, like, like some of our, um, intuitions about functional relationships can actually be, I think, a little misleading statistically. Yeah, definitely. Actually, this is one of the main uh, main points that I thought, like, oh, I really appreciate that someone thought this through. It's this sort of light switching example, because um, just for those who haven't done their like math stats in a while, you know, you can have variables, um, you can have uh, variables that are, you know, independence and correlation are not, uh, you know, it's not, uh, if and only if. So let's think about this, think of this. Um, you could essentially have a X determine Y deterministically and have zero correlation with Y via, for example, these these light switching examples. Um, and they seem like, you know, sort of perverse examples, but the fact is um, in reality, these things can pop up. And one of the things I thought was really cool about the mathematics is I was wondering, it's like, oh man, did he account for all these, like uh, for, all, for all these sort of like weird little brain teaser examples, but I guess the math works out. So it did. <laughs> that's what happens, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a nice that's thing about just, a proof, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that, that is cool. So um, just for, uh, for those who are interested in reading the paper, um, Chris, you had four examples um, and I think we'll probably, we'll probably go with like three of them. Um, and so you had, uh, you proved this in three different ways or three different applications. One was uh, for correlations. So the problem applied to correlations. Another was uh, applied to linear regression. Um, and so both of those first two are linear. And then you also have one on mutual information. So it's saying, okay, now let's not assume these linear relationships. Um, and well, I don't think we need to go through the math. I am curious about the strategy because I think that gets at the intuition of these problems a bit better. Um, yeah, it's okay. So, um, right. So, so what is, yeah. So what is the, the strategy, uh, for, for proving these, these different types of things? And, and I think, um, 
I guess I can, I can talk a little bit about my intuition behind each of them. Mm -hmm. So, um, so for the correlation one, the, the intuition here. So, so like I said, I, I, we, we proved this using, you know, an application of Cauchy Schwartz. And when you think about Cauchy Schwartz, actually it, it doesn't, I mean, like your first thought is probably not in probability Your your first thought is probably in vector spaces and linear algebra. And it turns out that there's obviously a, a, a kind of a beautiful relationship between, you know, vector spaces and, and probability spaces. Um, but when you view, you know, these sort of like random variables in terms of their vector, like the, the associated vectors, and you think about inner products, you know, and when you're thinking about the, the covariances, um, quickly what, when you begin to realize is that there's not so many ways that you can have two vectors pointing in the same direction as a third vector, um, but also orthogonal to each other, right? So yeah. orthogonality, this, which, is, which is the same as sort of like independence um, or, or, or zero covariance is sort of uh, the, the, the constraint that we're putting on things. And that sort of like was the intuition behind that sort of proof. Yeah, I like that. So for example, for maybe for uh, very early career statisticians and data scientists, you might remember, for example, back when you learned about PCA, and effectively what you're trying to do is find the vectors um, that maximize variance. And so the idea here is that um, as you're drawing these things through, these actually have strong relationships. Well, they're pretty much determined via the covariance matrix. Um, I, I, I don't think you can calculate one without calculating the other. But the idea is if you continually add more and more vectors, how many of these things can you actually add while still keeping them all orthogonal to each other? You know, as you add more and more dimensions, at least that, that, that was the way that I was thinking about it. And eventually what would be left of your outcome variable would be infinitesimal um, because you couldn't add any more orthogonal ones that still maintain their orthogonality to the rest of the variables that you had already added. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what you can think about is, is that each time that I throw an explanatory variable, um, in my outcome variable, I'm basically, I, I project away that direction and then I'm left with, and then, and then the very, the, the outcome variable in after this projection has to be shrinking. Mm -hmm. Right. And the amount that it shrinks is, is directly related to the amount of correlation that there was between them. Until eventually what is left of the, um, uh, the projection essentially becomes presumably a vector with zero magnitude would that be it exactly or, yeah. or magnitude below the threshold um, whatever the threshold is that yeah. you want to show claim that there was an effect yeah and i guess that that's one bit on um, that uh a lot of your your proofs are saying assuming that all of these correlation coefficients are greater than a certain amount so effectively you're assuming a magnitude greater than or equal to a certain amount is that yeah exactly right. exactly cool. you you yeah so i mean like so i, th I think that their phrase generally in a way that you know like you could you could um you know have them for for arbitrary you know sort of values but mm -hmm. um the easiest way to think about it to conceptualize is say okay imagine that they're all at least some threshold mm -hmm. um and that threshold is what we might call a large effect yeah and actually i was thinking that uh one of the ways this could be is effectively let's just say all the all the cool stuff's already taken out, and now you're just basically the person who wants to quibble over the the small details. One thing that you could do is you could have the remaining variance of the outcome of interest, and essentially you could then create a new, uh, I guess it would be the new tau bound on um, on the remaining one. So effectively, say you had a few large effects that you aren't going to try to do. 
you could then alternatively just look at what variable remains once those large correlations are taken out. And then you have a new bound that you apply to these smaller ones that you're still trying to figure out and bound. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's definitely one way that you can think about it. Cool. I, I feel like I've just sort of like butchered your really nice proof with just a lot of like heuristics and hand waving, but <laughs> I it it is it is really cool. Um now for the uh for the lin oh actually one other question was we talked about the correlation being the magnitudes of these correlations being greater than or equal to a certain amount. Um positive correlation versus negative correlation. Is there any aspect in there that sort of confounds or makes this difficult? Uh, no, it turns out that that's not a problem because what we can do is we can just, um, so for any variable that has a large negative correlation, you can just imagine taking the reverse of it and yeah. now it has a large positive correlation. And now we, and we can, we, we can like, we can flip all of the variables that were negatively correlated. We can flip them to be positively correlated with the outcome, mm -hmm. uh, and give it a bound on that. And that's the same as giving a bound on sort of the magnitudes of the correlations. Cool. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, now, so the ne the next one, the linear regression example. Uh, what what was your so? First, maybe we'll start with what what statement do you make with with uh, linear regression in the Piranha problem? Right. So the 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 theorem goes. So it's okay. So it's a little bit hairy. So let's just think about the first the first case is imagine that you have uh, your covariates are um, independent of each other. Okay, and also in all of these piranha theorems, you should also think about your um, random variables as being um, standardized. So they have, you know, mean zero and, and, and variance one. Okay, so, so imagine that you have these, you know, covariates that are all um, independent of each other, or at least, you know, uncorrelated with each other. Then if you plug those into a regression, uh, uh, a linear regression, where you're regressing on your outcome variable y, and you looked at the resulting coefficients, then the sum of squares of those coefficients. So if I sum up those, usually we use in statistics we use beta. So if you if you sum up those beta j's associated with each of the covariates, and you square each of those, um, that that is bounded above by one. So what that means is basically that. Um, the number of coefficients that can be larger than, for example, some value tau is less than like one over tau squared. So the number of coefficients that can be larger than 0.1, uh, that's less than 100. Mm -hmm. That's less than 100. Yeah. And so I guess one thing is that there, it's not obviously like an additive. It's not like a perfectly additive relationship. It's with reflect, it reflects on essentially the square of a lot of these values. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, okay, so if your variables aren't perfectly correlated or, or aren't perfectly uncorrelated with each other, if they, for example, have um, some, some correlation with each other, then this bound gets blown up slightly larger. Um, it depends on the minimum eigenvalue of this correlation matrix. Mm -hmm. So it looks like instead of like the sum of squares being bounded above by one, it's bounded above by one divided by this minimum eigenvalue. Um, and that's that's the the proof is is kind of actually it's it's one of those things where it's actually the proof is kind of like in the intuition. So the idea is that if I take my covariance matrix and I um, I invert it and I multiply it by my variables, this is a process called whitening. Um, you know, it's something that we do in, in 
you know, data analysis all the time. We, we take variables and we whiten them. And what that whitening does is it makes them orthogonal to each other. Okay, so you took your original variables, which were maybe uh, correlated with each other, and then we applied this, and now we get them uncorrelated. And now we can look at the regression coefficients on that, and that'll that sort of like tells you sort of this relationship over here. Hey everyone, we're in the final stretch of our episode. And before you go, I'd really appreciate if you could give me feedback on three things. First, what was your favorite question of the episode? What did I do right? Secondly, what question did you wish that I asked but didn't? And third, what questions were brought up by this conversation that you'd like answered in the future? That's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, cool. That, that is good. And it, as you said, uh, the I like when you said the the proof is in the intuition because I... I'm, I'm pure intuition, so if it goes beyond intuition, that's all I got. Um, but yeah, that, that is a cool one. Now, so those are two of the linear examples. Um, and again, I think one of the reasons that those are good is those really speak to the problems about the social scientific reporting, um, just these general sort of spurious results, um, inferring the butterfly effect where there isn't one. Those two, I think, really hit on that initial motivation. Um, the mutual information one, I think, is just, you know, that, that's just, it's uh, icing on the cake. It's uh, the cherry on top of the sundae a bit. Um, what, what was the motivation behind that? Was it to essentially make it more applicable to some of these, like, predictive methods, or what, what were you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So, uh, you know, you know, after we, we proved um, a couple of these piranha theorems, I think we were just, we, were, we sort of, like, start, you start to see them everywhere, right? You mm -hmm. start to see the piranhas everywhere. Um, and in this one, you know, like I, I come from a machine learning background, um, and, you know, obviously, you know, we, we don't in machine learning, we don't assume that all relationships are linear, mm -hmm. um, as, as well as many other fields don't assume. Linear Pretty much most interesting relationships are nonlinear and exactly. complex. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, like the natural thing still holds with, you know, like how much can you get, how much predictive power can sort of like be added you know, by like, if I have, if I are, if I have some, you know, variables and I look at the, their individual predictive power, how many such independent variables can you have? It, it didn't seem like it should be possible for there to be many, like it seemed like there should be some type of piranha theorem here. And this mutual information thing is, is kind of another way of getting at that. Um, yeah. yeah. Was there, was there anything specific that you wanted to highlight in sort of the intuition behind that or, um, yeah. So okay. So so what it, so the, what we end up showing over here um, is that if you um, if you look at all the mutual like if I if I look at every ren, every variable covariate xi and I look at its its impact on my outcome variable uh, then the the sum of such mutual informations should be bounded above by some term that depends on the mutual information among the Xi's and uh, plus this term that depends on the entropy of Y. Um, and the intuition over here is that like, okay, so if, you're, if your random variables are independent of each other, uh, then that, that term that depends on the, the cross mutual information is just zero. So you just have this, the, the mutual informations uh, between your covariates and your outcome variable. That sum is bounded above by the entropy of the outcome variable. Um, and basically what you can think about is you, you can think that each of these independent um, covariates is trying to pack some information into Y, 
but there's only so much information you can do for when you have bounded entropy. So like the entropy is you think about as a bound on the information. And over here, this is explicitly telling you, you know, how many, how many, you know, large, you know, aspects of why can I explain individually? Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, and so I guess um, when it comes to this sort of packing, if you will, I think one of the things that comes back is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of these things, a lot of these bounds for, oh, these bounds definitionally, um, they're only here because essentially scientists or researchers are insisting on saying that these variables are all independent, that they essentially have no cross information or that they, um, things like that. So, um, which is important because uh, of course we do want to be extracting the independent effect from correlational effects. But again, a lot of these things, um, it reminds me of, uh, uh, the, the, the big math tome that Lakatos wrote, uh, where, you know, effectively he's, um, uh, may, may, sorry, uh, uh, all this, he basically talks about mathematics and how you build up, um, assumptions and build up, uh, requirements in mathematical proofs by essentially taking something simple and then saying, well, I want to say more and I want to say more. So it's like, if you want to say something simple, you don't need very many assumptions. If you want to say more about it, you need to have this assumption laid in area. And I think that effectively where science has moved, we've, we started making these assumption laden claims, but we forgot what all the assumptions were, you know, saying these things like we've controlled for this and these things are independent. And I really like how you've just come back and say, no, like here are the logical mathematical implications of these claims. You know, it's just FYI in case anyone forgot. And if we reapply these, we can, we can see that some, some of these claims do not essentially hold mathematical or scientific water. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I think that's, a that, yeah, that's essentially, that's, that's one way to view this paper is that what we're trying to do is, is basically just give some type of perspective, right. Um, <laughs> on kind of a field as a whole. Cool. Um, again, uh, another quote, cause I thought this was interesting and it would lead to an interesting, uh, conversation, uh, question, but, um, on page eight for anyone who's reading, uh, you have this quote that says, we cannot directly apply these piranha theorems to data. Um, and could you explain that? Because I, the idea is, you know, um, if you're thinking about, you know, expected value and variance and things like that, you know, we can plug and chug. We can play with these things a bit. Um, you can add dimensions to a covariance matrix until it pops. I'll read it in full so that uh, people who are just listening can uh, read it. But the quote is, um, although we cannot directly apply these piranha theorems to data, we see them as providing some relevance to social science reasoning. The motivation of this review article is to collect several interesting results regarding the distributions of correlations or coefficients with the aim of fostering further work on mathematical and statistical models for environments with a multiplicity of effects. So, you know, obviously the people who've been listening to the podcast, uh, the reasoning around, or, you know, the, the aspects of scientific reasoning around these statements is a very interesting um, and this also brings up the issue of multiplicity, you know, the yeah, multiplicity, which we've been discussing. Um, but when you made the statement, we cannot directly apply these piranha theorems to data. Um, you know, I guess in some ways you could, but what were you sort of trying to highlight when you say that we can't be applying these, these theorems directly to data? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, like certainly, um, you know, what you could do is you could scour the literature. And you could look for every 
like you could look for, for example, on voting behavior, every study that claimed to have measured some type of effect or correlation, look at the, what those numbers are and and simply, you know, try to run the piranha machinery to tell you like, okay, we we can conclude that some of these must be false or at least dependent of each other. So that's you you could do that. I think the you know, one of the things that we're lacking though in this paper right now is the ability to sort of tell you any sort of um, actionable information over here. So we can't tell, we, we can tell you, yes, maybe there's something wrong, but we can't tell you what's wrong. Uh, and we can't tell you like exactly, you know, which of these studies is most suspect uh, or anything like that. So so at, at, while this is like, I think a, um, a paper about, you know, reasoning about, you know, like like a body of work, it, it doesn't really give much in terms of, you know, practical applications like you there's nothing that there's no turn crank that you can turn um to fix this for example yeah i mean it's like the idea you can't be taking this and applying it to the prosecution of a paper or say you know here here's our evidence against uh, against a uh, against some found uh thing exactly exactly like we can't we can't say uh yes this paper on shark attacks is the culprit. It's the reason why everything breaks. And if we just remove this from the literature, then everything is okay. Like mm -hmm. you can't, um, uh, we, we don't give any sort of mechanism for doing that. Right. It would be essentially just to reiterate that you are having to take these things in aggregate. So the idea is like, for example, the walking uh, paper, that you'd find multiple walking papers enough that, um, you know, I think you have a quote where it's like, with 100 studies, your 13% effect size can make people twice as fast or twice as slow without them noticing. So. It's reviewing these things in aggregate, dependent on the claim that people are making, which is that they have found an independent effect. Exactly, exactly. Um, or, or like conversely, if they don't make any sort of claim of whether or not it's independent of things in the literature, it does, it does at the same point, I think, highlight that it, it could not be independent. Yeah, and I guess it brings uh, into one question, because um, this is as good a place to talk about as any is when essentially, Let's just say someone comes into the uh, enters the literature and says, "I've now found an effect size like some correlation of like 0.25 or 0.3 or 0.4, something like that." Just big, just comes in like a big L SUV into a parking lot and just pushes all the little cars out of the way. Um, actually, that is the analogy. The question is, what cars are you going to push out of the way in order to accommodate an effect of this size? Because effectively, you're saying this is independent. If these other effects are taken up and they've been accepted, then you have to be saying that these other effects need to accommodate you given that you're saying that they're independent. And so should the researcher come and say, we are coming in, we found this effect size, it's statistically significant, our design is sufficient to have actually found independence. And now we're calling BS unlike these other articles are like these other articles in aggregate must be wrong. But no one obviously wants to say that because obviously the rest of the research community would sharpen the knives at you. Yeah, I think I think that it's a it's a really hard question, you know. Like once you once you sort of like see the 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 piranha theorem, then you then you realize that we're you know faced with some type of dilemma um, where on the one hand we could um, we could sit down and say, okay, no new effects unless you measure yourself against every established effect and show that you and show that you are sufficiently explaining something that's not already in the literature. Um, but that seems so uh, um, 
like draconian and difficult mm-hmm. to implement and, and just like expensive. Um, and so it's like, so, but on the other hand, if you do nothing, then you're sort of left with this kind of wild west thing where we say, sure, yeah, everything is a potential effect. Everything is um, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so it's, I think it's, um, it, it, and, and that's, I think one way in which, um, I think that we, wish that we could do more in terms of adding sort of like machinery, some, some type of machinery. This is, I think, a really great question of like, what can, what can be done about mm-hmm. this? Like what, what kinds of, you know, statistical practices could we encourage for everybody to do uh, so that it's not too onerous on any, indivi- on any individual researcher to, um, to actually, you know, discover something new and, and truly independent. Cool. Yeah. Um, one thing that caught my interest in this is you make uh, you make numerous references to uh, Brownian motion in your work, and there's a lot of Brownian an- analogies. Um, are those like briefly worth um, worth going into, or should we just uh, leave that be? I mean, we could just. I guess. I guess I'll just um, you know say I think you know the analogy over here is that okay. So Brownian motion, you know, is um, you know it's so it's it's a mathematical description of what happens to you know, molecules in a, in a gas or a liquid, you know, as they are sort of bounced around by their neighbors, right? And so you think about a molecule over here and then it gets hit and it bounces this way and then it gets hit by another molecule and it's, it's, its motion is, is, is random and it's, but it's, you know, somehow being affected by a whole bunch of things. Um, and I think that, you know, like the kind of analogy over here is that somehow like none of these effects could be like, you couldn't have a whole bunch of really consistent, large molecules that are always bouncing into it because otherwise the position of the, of the molecule would be, you know, going in crazy positions, you know, Mm -hmm. like everything has to be, you know, kind of small in order to sort of like obey sort of the physical limitations of the system. Cool. You know, I I like that analogy. I I very much enjoy uh, when people can construct analogies that are very easy uh, to grasp. Um, on the issue of, uh, we're, we're just going to start taking off some of the cool stuff because obviously there's a whole bunch in this paper. I'd strongly encourage people to read it. Um, there's a lot of dense stuff. Like uh, when I when I read this, I was pretty much excited for the entire week and afterwards just thinking about things, getting uh, do, doodling down on some math, doing some uh, numerical simulations and things like that, uh, trying to test these bounds. But um, you talk about um, the implications on this for regularization and, you know, how you might have like sparsity in Bayesian priors. Um, and what you discuss in here is that when you have a place where there's going to be a small number of uh, large effects and I guess an infinite number of small effects, um, that creates priors where you'd effectively see a spike right at zero. So effectively the spike is where there's a high density of things with basically no effect. Um, and then there's going to be, I guess, this very long tail um, populated by a small number of examples and how you might apply that to Bayesian priors. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that? Um, cause obviously you mentioned, um, you mentioned things like uninformative priors, sparse priors, sparse and correlated priors. What, what is the interplay between these things? Cause obviously I thought if you're gonna have a big spike and a long tail, that isn't really going to be an uninformative prior, except maybe in the extreme tail or something like that. But what's your call? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, like, so the, like, so the, um, the interplay of, of sort of like these types of, you know, prior distributions or, or different ways of doing regularization, um, 
that the interplay between those and, and, and Piranha and sort of like these Piranha theorems is that the Piranha theorem says that it, it says, okay, you can't have a whole bunch of independent large effects, um, but there's a bunch of ways in which these effects could actually be, be distributed. So maybe they're all very small or they're all like, you know, like there's a bunch of effects, but they're all small. Maybe some of them are very large, but that constrains everything else to being zero. And all these different ways that you could imagine, like, like what we've noticed is in the literature, like all the ways in which you could imagine sort of the constraints of the Piranha theorem being satisfied of like small, like everything is small except for a few large ones, or everything is sort of like kind of like relatively the same magnitude. These correspond to different priors that people have come up with in the literature, right? So there's like these spike and slab models, right? Where it's like, you know, like a big spike at zero and then everything is like, you know, like almost uniform going off out to zero, like out to infinity. Um, or, you know, like other, other, you know, sort of like only weakly, um, you know, informative priors or, or weakly sparse priors where they, they're basically normally distributed around zero with some type of, you know, variance that depends on, you know, um, the, the, the errors in the model, the, uh, the errors of the observed model. And, you know, those priors actually correspond to like one of these worlds in which the Piranha theorems live in. Cool. Um, if you don't mind me asking a bit uh, with these priors, are these types of priors um, actually, is it useful and easy? I, 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 I'll leave out the useful bit because I think I, I have already decided on that. But is it easy to come up with essentially uh, legitimate probability densities when creating these priors? Because, you know, a lot of the problems with um, in the machine learning field, when we have these uninformative priors, they actually aren't, you know, they aren't proper priors, they aren't actual distributions. Um, they're effectively regularizers um, poking at your uh, posterior. And so I, I, to, to me, um, to me, it seems like, you know, when you're talking about are these priors, are these legitimate priors? Or are these mainly being used as regularizers and we simply want to fashion them in a Bayesian framework? It's a great question. Uh, you'd probably have to, uh, as someone with a little bit more uh, Bayesian knowledge than myself <laughs> about, about the particular way about you know, prior specification. Um, Wait, you, you're, you're saying that prior specification isn't just like super easy, just there's like one rule that you follow and it's all, it's all downhill from there? No, it, it turns out that there's a lot of people that have spent a lot of time. <laughs> one, there's one or more rules on, on yeah, cool. Yeah, that that, that is, yeah, that, that is helpful. And I, I guess I won't pester you on that too much, but it, it is, you could definitely see how people would be able to, one of the nice things about this construction that you've made is it has given people a way to reason as they construct these things. And so you could imagine them definitely saying, okay, we're going to take, a world where we will entirely represent this as a probabilistic distribution, um, especially because the prior is essentially coming down from on high of uh, you know your mathematical statistical knowledge. Um, and I could also imagine people just saying like, you know what, um, I can regularize this inspired by by these methods. That is, yeah, and I think the other the other sort of benefit, sort of like okay, so you know maybe so this is one way in which sort of Piranha theorems can you know, inform our ideas behind, you know, Bayesian, um, you know, methodology, but sort of like on the flip side, we could also imagine looking at sort of specific prior models that people have come up with and asking what are the sort of resulting things that you would see in these piranha sort of type theorems, you know, um, and, and what, what sort of like effects would you expect to see in data? 
um, given that you know your prior effects were generated by such models. So I think that there's there's a lot of potential interplay here, um, you know, between piranha theorems and sort of like statistical methodology, in particular Bayesian methodology. Yeah, that is in, that, yeah that that is that's interesting. Actually, the the elicitation in the other direction wasn't something I was thinking about. So I think that's I'm glad you brought that up. Um, one uh, one other question, I guess, because I obviously we got we got to go soon. But um, there's the butterfly effect in complex systems, um, and I thought it'd be fun to talk about how these differ from the claims of these sort of like. Uh, social, sociological, and uh, social scientific studies. So essentially, it's the butterfly effect says, you know, a butterfly can have a big effect. The problem with the scientific claims is that they say these things will because, like, we've published it and we've we've checked for the independence. Um, so these are different in the nature of the claims, but they both have the same sort of uh, tabloid value to them. Um, what are your, what are what are your thoughts on this as far as um, essentially the implications? Yeah, no, so that's a that's a great question, right? Um, and and it sort of like exactly gets to to what you said, which is that like you know when, on the butterfly effect, you know, like with these sort of chaotic systems, that there is a potential for a small change to create a big you know destabilizing event that changes the whole dynamics of the system that's you know like a, a possibility you know that that arises in this chaos theory um but on the other hand uh you know like you might say like one one conclusion that you might say is like okay you only need a small perturbation to change the system so you know let's just find how we have to tip the the scales and in, in order to change the system let's find the butterflies uh, and so like the the point and and so that that may that type of reasoning inspired by the butterflies may explain why you know um in this in the social sciences we have seen a large pursuit like we've seen a large a large pursuit of different types of you know things that seem like totally you know like the relationship doesn't really it doesn't really seem clear strike attacks and voting behavior college football teams and voting behavior like we don't see it like it shouldn't be clear, but the butterfly effect, you know, taken at face value and with not really a, 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 a large regard for the nuances of it suggests that, oh, well, butterflies are just waiting to be found. You just find them, find these little things and you can tip the scales and maybe you can. And then, you know, the belief is like, maybe we can actually tip those scales reliably. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and so I guess the, the piranha theorem is sort of like coming in and it's saying, well, no, you can't do that. Um, not with a bunch of things that are seemingly irrelevant. You can't reliably tip the scale, you know? Yeah, so it's like the idea is like, um, sure, maybe there are butterflies that can cause hurricanes on the other side of the world. But the fact is, if such butterflies exist, there can only be a few of them. Like you can't have um, the world populated with these hurricane-causing butterflies because otherwise our world would be covered in hurricanes. <laughs> exactly, like you can't, I can't just go and say, okay, this, this rainforest is where if the butterfly flaps its wings, that'll create it. And so I'm just going to like I I really you know want to study hurricanes or I'm I'm really we need data <laughs> exactly. I want the data, so I yeah. just release butterflies there, and I will cause hurricanes. That isn't really how you know chaos theory predicts things, and and it's obviously not something that actually you know occurs in statistics either. Yeah, it's, it, there's a big difference between saying this can do this and thou shalt have this effect. Um, exactly, which exactly. I think. 
is why we like science because effectively it's saying we've done enough of our homework, check the confounding enough to know that effectively there is going to be a much more mechanistic um, understanding. Actually, it reminds me a little bit about the comments you're making earlier about um, essentially having these uh, things where you can have uh, dependency without correlation. Um, so effectively, the real sneaky butterflies would be the ones who can cause these things, but there's no correlation left at the end. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so maybe there is a particular you know, configuration of butterflies, um, mm -hmm. but you'll never be able to statistically detect them. <laughs> well, that is great. Um, once again, I honestly think, thanks for so much for uh, you and your co-authors for going through this paper because, you know, it's a very interesting topic. Um, so uh, read, if for people who are interested, there are multiple blog posts on it. Um, apparently, Terrence Howe has some stuff on it as well. And um, re, re, check out this paper. It'll be in the description. Um, but I really appreciate you just going through and providing mathematical formality to it for people like me who would never bother to do that. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, it's always great to discuss this work. And, and yeah, I mean, like if anybody, you know, wants to, you know, like I, I'm always open to uh, hearing from people about their thoughts on this stuff. And if they have ideas on this, this is, I think, a really interesting area. And I'm just glad to be able to talk about it. Yeah. If you don't mind, oh, how does this relate to the broader aspects of your work? Um, uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> so, um, maybe, so, so this is, it's a bit of a one-off project, uh, in the sense that I, I don't have like a large body of work that builds around this. Um, but I think the reasoning behind it has, uh, influenced a little bit of my thinking on, um, some recent work that I've done on, on, on machine learning, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if you, if you want to hear about yeah. that right now. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I was actually going to make the joke that, uh, you mentioned neural nets in there. It's like, ah, the paper's relevant. It says neural nets in there, but yeah, no, um, I, I, th I think that this is definitely interesting because effectively when you're thinking about things like recommender systems, for example, where, um, if you're trying to look at how much information, where to add new information, this I think is very informative because essentially it's setting bounds on what you can expect. And if you add something like, like that to the cost. Um, you know, that, that was just what popped into my head originally, but what, what are you, what are you working on and what is this, how does this apply? Right. So, so there's a really hot area in machine learning right now called contrastive learning. That's related to this idea of self-supervised learning. And, uh, it's a really cool idea where basically you want to learn representations from unlabeled data using neural networks. And the way that you do it is you take. Um, for example, for image data, the way that you do it is I take an image and then I um, randomly crop it. And, and, and then I take another image and I randomly crop it. And I ask the question, um, I ask a neural net to be able to distinguish between whether or not these two random croppings came from the same image. Um, and, and essentially in the process of doing this, you, you learn a representation and you know, so so I, I wanted to analyze this sort of theoretically with with some some great co-authors, and basically something came out um, that was very piranha-like, which is that, you know, like when are these representations useful? Um, well, it turns out that they're that that we can prove that they're useful uh, when it's the case that um, these these random transformations of the images still preserve some sort of information about this downstream task. 
Um, and, and as it turns out, uh, there's only so like, like if they preserve information about, like if they are somehow informative about each other, like if they're informative about each other, like doing these random croppings, then they must be informative of the downstream task. Um, so it's, it's a bit piranha like that, that there's only like so many ways in which you can sort of like pack this information before they actually, the way in which they explain each other is also explaining sort of like the label of the image, for example. Uh, that is very cool. You know, I definitely, I can definitely see where you're going there. Um, yeah, a little bit what I was thinking about is just like the idea is like, well, you know, depending on how you crop, um, there's only so many big crops that you can have before there's nothing left. Um, but <laughs> I liked, I, I think yours is a bit more sophisticated um, than that. But yeah, that is, that is cool. Oh, was there anything else that you want to talk about uh, as far as uh, what your research is or any other general epiphanies? I mean, you've written a smart paper. I'm just generally curious about ideas, epiphanies, anything like that? Um, I mean, like, I, I think that, I think that these are, are, are at least two, I mean, like two interesting ideas that, um, I've thought about recently, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, um, maybe a little out of scope to talk about a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, that, that that's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, Chris, again, um, thank you so much for writing this paper. I think it was really useful and extremely interesting. Um, for those who are worried about, uh, sort of the more mathematical papers, I think that this paper is worth the trouble. And you can appreciate it, even if you basically just gloss over the theorems. I think like it, it has so, such a rich description in it. It's very useful. So, uh, Chris, thank you so much for the contribution, both to the field and to, to my own curiosity on this. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.